is Allison Markoski and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A new federal report shows that at least 500 Native American children died while attending one of over 400 residential schools across the country, including 11 schools here in Wisconsin, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. At a press conference yesterday, U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland spoke about the report and the lasting impact the schools had on Native American communities. The schools were set up across the country starting in the early 1800s with the goal to assimilate Native American children to European culture. The federal report comes as State Attorney General Josh Call is compiling his own report that looks at abuses committed at the 11 residential schools in Wisconsin. That report is still ongoing. The four GOP frontrunners running for governor all have plans to drastically overhaul the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The bipartisan WEC is the state agency tasked with administering and enforcing election laws in Wisconsin. While some, like Republican candidate Tim Michaels, calls for everyone on the board to be terminated and replaced, others take a more drastic approach. Wisconsin State Journal reports that Rebecca Cleefish, Tim Rampton, and Kevin Nicholson all call for the commission to be completely abolished. Rampton and Nicholson have said that they would place election authority into the hands of the Secretary of State. State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss wants to change Wisconsin's abortion laws to allow exceptions for rape and incest. Wisconsin's current law, which was written in 1849, would ban all abortions unless the mother's life is at risk. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Voss's comments put him at odds with the rest of the GOP legislators, with Voss acknowledging that he doesn't know how many of his fellow Republicans would sign on to the idea. That said, all four GOP frontrunners in the race for governor have all stated that they support a broad ban on abortion. Outgoing UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank gave her final press briefing yesterday, looking back at nine years working with the university. Blank said that she's leaving a few unfinished items on her agenda, specifically surrounding diversity. Blank said that she laments that she did not do more to increase diversity on campus and improve students' sense of belonging. Last year's campus climate survey found that students of color, disabled students, and LGBTQ students were less positive about the university than the general student body. Blank also says that the new chancellor, who has not yet been named, will have to be persistent to deal with what she calls overregulating from state lawmakers. Blank is set to leave her post on May 27th to become president of Northwestern University. The Madison Metro School District has a new summer school offering this year for students interested in everything from acting to music production to tap dance. The Summer Arts Academy will hold afternoon sessions in a variety of arts programs at area middle schools. The free program is open to all kindergarten through fourth grade students in the Madison School District, at least for this year, which is its pilot year. Classes start on June 20th, and the deadline to register for classes is tomorrow. The Goodman Pool is getting ready to open for the year, and it's expected to be busier than usual this summer. The Madison School District will close most of its pools over the summer to allow for construction projects, according to the State Journal. Usually, MMSD pools are open to the community over the summer months 
and are home to Madison School Community and Recreation for swim lessons and aquatic fitness classes. These programs will be shifted to the Goodman Pool over the summer, though the City Parks Department say that they are not planning for a change in the community's use of the pool. The Goodman Pool is scheduled to open June 10th. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 2,760 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, with an average of 2,062 new cases being reported every day over the past week. Those numbers are for Wisconsin. The current amount of tests coming back positive is 13.3%, which is the highest the state has seen since February. There were also seven new deaths from the virus yesterday. Here in Dane County, there were 593 confirmed cases yesterday, with 42 people currently hospitalized from the virus. Additionally, two more people have died from COVID in Dane County. And now, on to today's top stories. Education leaders and social media reform advocates are sounding the alarm on the potential harmful effects of social media on kids' mental health. They're calling for new projections for children and for lawmakers to prioritize kids' mental health online. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and some education leaders and medical experts are urging parents to take a more active role in monitoring their kids' mental well-being, which includes their use of social media. In a recent discussion hosted by the American Federation of Teachers, Dahlia Hashad with the group Parents Together described the long-term impact that overuse of social media can have on kids. The longer a child spends online, the higher their level of anxiety, the higher the level of mood swings, aggressive behavior, feelings of worthlessness. It bears out in the statistics. Hospitalizations for eating disorders doubled last year. This year in Congress, a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced the Kids Online Safety Act. It would force tech platforms to, among other things, offer the option to disable certain addictive features and opt out of content chosen by algorithm. The bill was assigned to the Senate Commerce Committee in February and hasn't seen any action since then. One of the most prominent social media reform advocates is Francis Haugen, a former Facebook employee turned whistleblower, who leaked details last year about the platform's internal business practices. Meta, Facebook's parent company, argues it has adequate internal policies in place to protect users and kids. But Haugen points out most consumer products used by children have to adhere to federal regulations. If we hold you know, children's toys to a product liability standard where you need to demonstrate you did safety by design, you know, why aren't we asking the same thing of these virtual products for children, especially as we move into the land of the metaverse, which is going to be an emergent harm. The AFT also has an online archive of webinars and other resources for parents about kids' mental health and keeping them safe online. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Temperatures in Madison reached a high of 92 degrees Fahrenheit today as the city is caught in a record-breaking wave of hot weather that is sweeping the Midwest. WORT reporter Andy Barrow has more. The temperature crept past 90 today, but it felt even hotter than that. The National Weather Service reports that the heat index reached 96 degrees Fahrenheit, with heavy sun and humidity contributing to the hottest May 12th in the state's history. The sunlight and hot weather have also caused harmful concentrations of bad ozone in the air, 
leading the state to issue an ozone advisory for southeastern Wisconsin. The heat is not just hitting those outdoors, however. The Capital Times reports that many Madison public schools lack air conditioning, leading to discomfort and dehydration among both students and teachers. Earlier today, with sun shining overhead, I headed down to Brittingham Park to see how folks are coping with the heat. Some said that they are loving today's weather, while others are concerned. Uh, I'm Amber. I'm feeling a little alarmed by the heat. This feels unnatural, and it's a shock to the system. I was not ready for this. But we're hanging out by the lake, where it's nice and windy, so it doesn't feel as hot. We're right by the water, so we can jump in if we're feeling overheated. We've got cold drinks, cold snacks, trying to keep everything else cool to beat the heat. Hi, I'm Jared, and definitely love this weather. Uh, the warmer, the better. All right, cool, great. And what are you doing to, to stay cool? Well, definitely here in Monona Bay, there's a lot of wind, so that helps uh, keep it cool. And uh, iced coffee helps as well. I'm Rachel. Um, I'm enjoying the heat, but it's a little too much, so we had to go to the beach so that we could cool off a little bit. And I'm mainly staying indoors or the shade and avoiding the sun, basically. Um, my name is Alejandra, and with the heat wave, I've just been trying to stay inside mostly. We turned on our AC, but we decided to come over here because we thought it'd be pretty windy, which it is. Um, I don't know, I was planning on buying ice cream too, but I don't feel like walking all the way over there. I'm Chez, and how I'm co coping with the heat is I love the heat, so I'm spending a lot of time outside. Currently, we're having a picnic by the lake, and the breeze is so nice to make the heat more bearable and enjoyable. Yeah. Hi, I'm Connor. Uh, the heat has been a nice change of pace, um, but it's almost been a little too much so far. My house doesn't have AC or anything, so I've just been cooking in there while I've been finishing up the last of my schoolwork and stuff, and yeah, I've just been getting outside, drinking lots of water and everything just to just to get used to the heat. Um, man, it, it's, it, the day is great, man. It's beautiful. It's been a long time waiting, man. You know, we um, went through all this pandemic and everything. You know, it, it's just a blessing just to be here, being able to just look across the lake like this, you know, and, um, you know, it's good to have, to have a, a second chance to get everything started again. It should be slightly cooler this weekend with storms on the horizon. Next week, temperatures are expected to decrease with Monday's high at 72 degrees. Reporting for WRT, this is Andy Barrow. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After redistricting took hold earlier this year, several Madison Alders found themselves no longer living in the district they represent. This means that they will be able to finish off their terms, but come next year will have to fight against the Alder of their new district 
if they intend to stay on the board. Additionally, two alders have already put in their resignation, with a third on the way as former council president Saeed Abbas looks to run for state assembly. This means major changes across the entire board. To dig deeper into these changes, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhauk spoke with Dylan Brogan, senior news writer for Isthmus, for this week's Isthmus on Warp. The Madison Common Council will be going through some major changes over the next few months as two council members have already announced their resignation and a third on the way. Here to talk to me about those changes is senior news writer for Isthmus, Dylan Brogan. Dylan, thanks for talking with me here. Sure thing. So just to sort of start things off, who is all leaving the council and why are they leaving? Well, uh, Alder uh, Christian Abbas is leaving later this month because uh, he was one of six Alders that was redistricted out of his district, right? So Mm -hmm. he used to live in, uh, or he he still represents District 20 for another few weeks, but um, he technically lives in District 10, 14, I think it's 14, one of those. Um, But anyway, uh, it was, he decided that he was going to move, and it doesn't sound like it was exactly related to being redistricted out, but um, he hasn't ruled out running in, he is moving into District 1, Mm -hmm. where there currently is no alder living there. So, opens up some speculation about whether he's moving into that district, um, because it doesn't necessarily mean he, uh, you know, is resigning, or, or he intends to... Stay off the council forever. It looks like uh, at least he's not discounting the possibility of running again. Mm-hmm. So that that's uh, the first one, and that was. Yep. Um, uh, I believe I believe he had his last meeting uh, this last Tuesday. Yeah, actually, th- and so. I think an Alder Lindsay Lemmer did as well. Correct. And she's leaving for I believe um, just family uh, issues and, uh, and and job issues. Um, not really anything having to do with the council. Just you know, people have. Uh, People make choices about careers and have spouses. So, and um, so sh- she's leaving. Also, I think uh, I think she might already be resigned. So there are two current positions that will have to be filled, and they'll be appointed mm-hmm. after people submit applications, and they'll serve until April 2023. Correct. So, and then um, you know, and that's not exactly an ideal situation because a lot of times when someone is appointed to the council. They kind of become the quasi incumbent, even though they never won an election, right? Right. And um, <laughs> incumbents aren't exactly challenged very often on the city council; they're just two-year terms. So, mm-hmm. um, and then we also have Alder Saeed Abbas, who is the former council president, and he told me that he's likely moving to Sun Prairie this summer because he's running for Gary Hebel's assembly district. So. Um, there's a whole other story having to do with that. that but, yeah, uh, that is its whole little thing. But there. he's going for it and has to and plans on moving to Sun Prairie, so that uh, position will also have to be filled. So three, it's not exactly unprecedented. Um, there is, but um, you know that's a good chunk of the council uh, that is leaving early. And yeah, you said not exactly unprecedented. Not also not exactly you know normal for the city council and other redistricting cycles have do have things like this happened at least to your knowledge yeah and it's i i think redistricting was part of the reason um at least for christian alburis um but no this year there were definitely more alders impacted by redistricting than in other years and so it's a little bit confusing right because let's say you're an alder and you're we'll take alder heck for example in Mm -hmm. district two so uh right he still represents district two but as of january 1st he technically lives in district six 
So if he <laughs> wants to run again, he'll have to run in District 6. Uh, and District 2 is now a little further towards up towards the Capitol. So mm-hmm. um, th- it is rare that six alders were sort of in this weird position where they still they, they don't live in the district, but they represent it f- until April 2023. But nothing really to do about that in state law allows them to continue serving until the end of their term as long as they don't move. So Christian Aburis, if he would have moved next door, mm-hmm. he would have to resign. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So is that making sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, it's... Uh, the city and yes, state but laws. if he moved back into District 20, which he's no longer in, then mm-hmm. he wouldn't have to resign. Okay, but he's okay. not. He's moving into <laughs> District 1, which doesn't, which is represented by. Um, I really hope I'm getting all my numbers right here uh, by Barbara McKinney, but that she now correct. lives in District 20. Mm-hmm. So, and no Alder lives in District 1. So, uh, Alder Aburis is moving into one of the districts that currently has no Alder representing it, which would be good if he wants to have a future <laughs> on the council because he's a little bit like it might be a. Uh, incumbent-like status. At least he wouldn't have to run against one of his current colleagues. And so looking forward, mm-hmm. next couple of months here, three people probably leaving. Two for sure. One, I would say, yeah, the, unless uh, Saeed Abbas uh, decides to drop out of this 46th district assembly race, he's, mm-hmm. he has to move. Right. So that's if I did my math correctly, that's about 15% of the board that will be leaving, which, I mean, that's a, you know, not insignificant shakeup in the makeup of the board uh, sort of looking at all, all this we already have a new council president president with yep. a firm in there but how will the structure and sort of makeup of the board change with you know having to get three brand new people who will sit on the board for about a year yeah um well they certainly won't be elected right which is mm-hmm. what you want on a <laughs> elected body but no, what happens is people submit applications, and then the council effectively chooses the representative to fill out the rest of the term. So, And the reason why it's a little bit of a big deal uh, is that now you have somebody who's done the job for nine months and is rep- you know, he's got to know constituents, was never, um, but, you know, may... It wasn't elected in the first place. So I wouldn't say, you know, these things happen, and they have definitely happened before, but, you know, ideally, you, everyone on the council was elected by their neighbors. Right. And that won't be the case for three people, at least for nine months or so. Yeah. And then sort of, you know, going same along these lines, there's six alders now uh, who don't live in their current districts, which, I mean, just is going to throw everything into disarray for next year. Yeah, no, it'll be really interesting to see how that all shakes out because... in um, Alder uh, Figueroa Cole's district, I believe there's three alders who were living there uh, or who are currently right. in that district. So, uh, and so did, and she wasn't redistricted out. So, uh, Alder Aburis, I know, was one of them. So, that will lead to some shakeups and potentially you'll have kind of the unique, uh, the unique circumstance in which you have uh, two incumbents running for one seat mm-hmm. and both have kind of a claim to. Uh, being the incumbent, and incumbency does matter in local elections Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times they don't receive challengers. And then sort of sticking on the lines of the Common Council here, obviously their meetings have been virtual for uh, more than two years years at this point, and it's sort of looking like they're going to continue staying virtual, at least for the time being, until they decide on otherwise. Uh, Sort of tell me about that and how the mayor is... Uh, sort of yes the mayor very the mayor for months now has been 
sort of pushing for alders to start meeting in person again. And there are, uh, I, you know, a very significant number of alders who have never even met each other or at least attended right. a meeting at the same, uh, an in-person meeting together. Right. And uh, the mayor is concerned that that is not the most effective way for uh, city council to run. And it's made meetings longer and maybe perhaps uh, made tensions flare more than they would have <laughs> if they were in person. Um, and at the moment, there's kind of two things going on. The council will ultimately get to decide how whether to do in-person or virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, but what everyone agrees on is that the public should have the option to give testimony at a city council meeting virtually. So okay. that's what the city IT's department um, is doing right now, is they're setting up this hybrid model where you could have this in-person council meeting happening, but mm-hmm. p- the public can still weigh in virtually. So they're not done with that yet. The, the latest estimate, I believe, is like late June that that hybrid meeting format will be up and running. So, um, but then it's like, well, what about city staff? Mm-hmm. Do they have to be there in person? What about alders themselves? Do they, is there, um, like, is it okay if you have 18 alders who mm-hmm. are in the in the room together, but two are attending virtual? And what circumstances should they be allowed to attend virtually? Mm-hmm. Um, is it an, uh, an alder, Brian Benford, has been way less critical of virtual meetings and saying they've been a real success in many ways and that, hey, what if um, you have an alder who's doing a great job of their constituents, but, you know, or they have a child care issue uh, last minute? Should they not? Should they have to be absent from the meeting when they can attend virtually? Uh, so, um, you know, what's a good excuse? What's a bad excuse? Should alders need an excuse? They all have, that whole thing needs to be sorted out, and uh, there are some very different opinions about, uh, you know, whether our alders should be required to meet in person or whether they should uh, have the option to attend meetings virtually. I've been talking with Dylan Brogan, senior news writer for Isthmus, about the major shakeups happening over at the Madison Common Council. Dylan, thanks for coming on today. No problem. Thank you. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News. Here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up in the second half of the show. Fermenting wort looks at the history of one component in almost every beer, alcohol. Transparency Talk looks at who is actually in charge of different issues in our state, and Radio Chipstone finds passion through a fashion show. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host, Allison Markowski. Thanks for joining us. Alcohol, the allure of, or bane of, every beer drinker. This week on our beer and brewing feature, Fermenting Wart, host Colin Morgan talks alcohol, where it comes from in beer, and perhaps why we should revisit our relationship with it. Booze, juice, hard stuff, liquor. If you didn't already know it, there is actually alcohol in beer. What a surprise. Today, I will be diving into how alcohol gets into beer and some market trends that are a little disturbing from a brewer's perspective. First, what even is alcohol? 
I have a feeling that many people who drink the stuff don't even really understand where it comes from or why it even exists in the first place. So, a little Thursday night science. Alcohol is the main byproduct of fermentation. So if you've been to a brewery, winery, or distillery, you've probably seen those big stainless steel tanks, or maybe some wooden tanks, described as fermentation tanks. Fermentation tanks hold fermenting liquid. How very logical. The general idea for a brewer is to make a food source for yeast, and the yeast will ferment that food into alcohol. So fungi have been getting a lot of press these days, and for good reason. At this point, you've even probably watched Fantastic Fungi on Netflix and are taking lion's mane extract in your morning coffee and telling all of your friends how great you feel. Good for you. And if you haven't seen it, just wait. Someone will tell you to watch it anyway. So if you didn't know, yeast, like baker's yeast in the packets at the grocery store, is actually a fungus. In this case, a so-called sugar fungus. The genus for brewing and baker's yeasts is Saccharomyces, or Greek for sugar fungus. The reason being is that members of this particular genus are exceptional at eating sugar. In the wild, these yeasts are usually found around ripe fruit. They are single-celled organisms, which allow them to be easily carried on the wind or on the backs of pollinators or other creatures that go from fruit to fruit, tree to tree. Every time they encounter a new source of sugar, those single cells multiply and consume all that they can as quickly as they can. This ensures that they get all the food and create enough new yeast cells to be carried away onto the next food source. So they are called microbes, and microbial environments are very hostile. And yeasts have to compete with every other microorganism for their food, so they create a weapon, alcohol. While alcohol gives us, as humans, a fun little buzz and makes even the most mundane things seem just a little more fun for us, it is a poison for many other microbes. This defense mechanism allows yeasts to monopolize the food source and create a less hostile environment for themselves to thrive in. So at some point in history, humans figured out that we can give yeasts a source of sugar and they will ferment it for us. In other words, we became the monkey in charge of the bananas. For winemakers, this meant providing grape juice in exchange for hooch. For beer brewers, malted grain sugars. For a little sauce, it put us right past the click into that wonderful moment where we were sober enough to know what we were doing, but drunk enough to really enjoy doing it. Oh, pardon me. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, in all seriousness, that's where alcohol comes from in beer. While it can be an excellent social lubricant, and a reminder of why life is beautiful, this is about to become a public service announcement. I have noticed a particular trend recently regarding alcohol in its many forms that I find quite concerning. And I think others have started to notice as well. Have you seen any grocery stores recently that are starting to have full-service bars in them or offer drinks while you shop? Perhaps you've gone to the airport and had a little something to calm your nerves while you wait, only to realize that now you can just carry your beverage all the way to the plane. It is very convenient. And now we can stay buzzed all the time. In reality, though, I find it very concerning that there is a push to incorporate alcohol into our lives ever more. 
and I literally depend on the stuff for my living. So me saying this is kind of big. We should strive towards drinking better quality, with better company, with better food, and certainly more locally. As a brewer, I want people to enjoy the art that we create and let it bring more beauty and connectedness with life. And when we don't think when we drink, it's almost as if we're being treated in a more infantile way. Alcohol is becoming more childish with simple flavors and horribly immature marketing gimmicks. Perhaps I'm just out of touch with what the public really wants, but I have to think that underneath the noise, most people want quality over quantity. They want a story of how something was carefully created with passion, dedication to a unique art form. And I also believe that most people actually don't want to be boozed up all the time. It's time to start putting alcohol back where it should be, in almost a, I dare to say, sacred role. Support your local breweries, push your breweries and bars to create better experiences, and foster community and culture. And stand up to the powers that want to sell you cheap thrills, disguised as more freedom of choice. As a community, we should strive to create better products by people who want to create them and help the people that want to create something really beautiful and bring something into the world that's worth doing and not allow corporate influences to dictate what we want. This has been an important public service announcement from your local brewer, Colin. Thank you very much for listening. Every other Thursday, our feature contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kameny president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. In this archival episode of Transparency Talk, which first aired last October, Kamenik and Chester talk about the delicate balance between elected officials and appointed administrators. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. Right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Howdy, howdy, Jonah. I'm doing good. Yourself? I'm doing fine and dandy. We are coming to the end of another news week for uh, me personally, which means I'm excited to get into weekend mode. But hey, before I can say TGI Thursday, because we don't have a Friday broadcast, we've got an interesting episode topic to dive into here today. And that's uh, the question of who's really in charge on certain governmental bodies, elected boards or hired administrators. The most common example folks might have of a power balance between an elected board and a hired administrator is a school board versus a school administrator. Tom, take me from there. Give us give us the background and the, the supporting details here. Exactly. Who's running things? Is it the elected accountable representatives who are on the school board? Or is it the full-time experienced staff that are, are hired by the school board to run run the district? You know, this this is a recurring issue across the state. You do see it a lot in school boards, but it can also show up with city councils versus mayors, county boards versus county executives. And it's especially interesting in school districts because unlike mayors and county executives, superintendents aren't elected. They are hired by the school board. They work for the school board and at the school board's pleasure. But still, I am seeing this 
crop up constantly that these administrators, and it's not just the superintendents themselves, but the, the whole administrative staff, they want to be in charge and they want to dictate to these school boards what's going to happen. And, and so you get you, you get issues where administrators are restricted, trying to restrict the authority of the school boards or restrict the school board's access to information about the district. And you know, I've even heard this from multiple people around the state that the Wisconsin Association of School Boards itself somehow is pushing this line, that it's encouraging school boards to fall in line with what administration is telling them to do and present this unified front. So no dissent from within kind of a, kind of an attitude coming from the lobbying organization for school boards, theoretically. And today I want to talk especially about a recent article that just got my blood boiling. So this article described the legal advice that the Green Lake School District's lawyer was giving to the Board of Education in open session that was filled with incorrect and misleading information. So and the whole gist of this is that the, the lawyers obviously acting on behalf of the administration and try, basically bullying the members into taking a back seat, not listening to the public and becoming a rubber stamp for administration. Now, give me the issues at hand in that case. Let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into that. Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read what the article quotes this lawyer is saying. So here's number one. The lawyer said elected officials can only act in an official capacity during a meeting. Stop right there. That's basically accurate. They have to do something officially. They have to be meeting in a, in a publicly noticed meeting. But it goes on saying, so they should not be discussing government business or discussing school policy with members of the public outside of a meeting. Wait a second, the lawyer is telling them you should not talk to your constituents. You should not listen to the people who elected you. You should not care about what they think about public policy, about school district policy. That, that, that is horrible advice. Number two, members of the school board are supposed to act with the exact same information. I don't know where that's written down. Uh, so when someone discusses policy outside of a meeting, they could unintentionally gain information that other officials haven't. Huh. Because, you know, God forbid that the school board members learn facts and learn information from anybody other than the administrators. I, I can tell what's going on here is the administration wants to control the flow of information to these board members. Number three. When you're only a member of the board when you're in this room, when you go through that door, you're no longer a school board member, you're a citizen. False, false, false. This is not a nine to five clock in, clock out job. These are elected representatives. Number four, when school board members receive emails from members of the public, oh boy, I see where this is going, related <laughs> to district business, they are instructed to pass the email along to administration and to instruct the public to speak in public comments during the board meeting or to submit written comments. So the superintendent and the administrators work for the school board. This is a reminder, not the other way around. They're trying to tell the school board that, that these elected officials should tell people, tell their own constituents not to be contacting them except in an official meeting. That's wrong. That's horrible advice. That's anti-democratic in all kinds of ways. 
You're on a roll, Tom. Just go ahead and keep posting up your Martin Luther-esque list of grievances. <laughs> we'll we'll wrap yeah. it all up at the end with with some Nailed. with some con- overarching thoughts. But keep going, keep nailing them up. Nail these to the school board doors is what I'm saying. <laughs> Next one. Now we're talking about Facebook and social media here. Quote: In terms of social media policy, the lawyer recommended school board members use platforms only to stay in touch with family and friends, never to comment on district policy. Now we're getting into First Amendment territory here. All these elected officials have constitutional rights themselves as individuals to comment on public matters. The school board is being told, don't talk publicly about your jobs. Don't talk publicly about the district. What is going on here? This is awful. (laughs) Finally, and, and, and this one is, isn't even directly related to school board work, but it's just completely wrong. Additionally, the lawyer told the school board, never make a fake account because it's illegal, as it essentially creates a fake identity. That's just wrong. <laughs> there is no law saying it's illegal to make a fake social media account. If there was, I think most of us would be <laughs> in violation of that kind of a law. But no, the... Anonymous speech is itself a constitutional right. And and yes, if there are some circumstances where pretending to be somebody else might be illegal, but a blanket statement saying creating a fake social media profile is illegal is just wrong. That's bad lawyering. People do it all the time. And even in some cases, it is legal to pretend to be somebody else. Uh, for example, parody. We should all be familiar with parody accounts like on Twitter where they you know, pretend to put words into prominent politicians and other public figures mouths like here's what they really mean or what they really think and those kind of things are constitutionally protected all right so we've got our list of grievances laid out the they have been nailed to the wall of this particular school administration building so let's wrap let's let's wrap that all up with a nice bow what can this case teach us about government transparency how does that balance between elected and appointed administration versus board factor into the larger view of of government transparency and open government? Democracy is all about representation, and your representatives are those school board members, not the hired or appointed administrators who work for the school district. Those people are employees of the school board. The school board makes the decisions who to hire and who to fire. Nobody should be putting up walls between people and their elected representatives. That will be a good point to leave off for today's episode, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Uh, Tom, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. You're welcome, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. And if you don't go, you won't know. So get to those meetings. Get to those meetings, folks. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Carolyn Callenborn is a professor in human ecology, textiles, and fashion design program coordinator for the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison. 
Well, she was until she decided to retire at the end of the spring semester. As an artist, Kalanbor's inspiration comes from her many trips to Osaka, Mexico. She says her work with indigenous artists changed how she saw the integration between the arts and our daily lives. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Callenborn tells contributor G- Jennifer Fields about how she encourages her students to find a connection between who they are and what they love and how to channel that information into their creations. In the classroom when I'm teaching with the students, sometimes I'm just teaching skills and techniques, which can be really fun, but a lot of times I'm trying to get them well, both to think differently, but then especially if they get to be older, you know, upper level students, to me, the, the push is always for them to find out who they are. I'm always asking people like to think about who are you besides this person that's designing? Are you interested in, you know, karate or soccer? I've had, you know, people have had kind of really unusual uh, connections or somebody's interested in Norwegian heritage and somebody else is interested in something else. And so how do you take those parts that you don't normally think of as belonging with your art or design practice and then add those in? And to me, that's where the work gets really interesting. And I think I'm much more interested in clothing and art, not for being like the famous person in a museum or the most famous designer who's making all this like that's never been my personal interest at all in this but I'm really interested in clothing and making and the things we put around us and the things that we spend our time on and how that connects to something about who we are how it could be expression about who we are I've made garments that to me are about um, what it's like to feel overwhelmed and and by a thousand little tiny details. And so I don't know if you saw my website, but there's this rock dress that has like 40 pounds of rocks tied in it yes. and in the hem. Yeah. And, and like, I think of that piece a lot because I feel like that a lot in life because it is that like, you know, it's not one thing that makes things difficult. It's a whole bunch of little bitty things that can add up and make things, you know. And there was something about, in making that piece by like taking this thing that's rolling around in my head and then making it into a physical thing that then someone else could see and understand what, you know, I was feeling this is like a way of um, connecting with other people. And, and through that making and having this piece that visually communicates this thing that I'm thinking about, uh, I find that works much better than me like trying to, tell somebody about it you know what I mean like but and it gets it out of my system like I don't have to carry it anymore either because clothes are these things we put on temporarily and we could put something on and change our personality sometimes just by you got a jacket with shoulder pads you feel really powerful you know and then you take that (laughs) off and you could be in your yoga clothes and but you do feel different and I like that idea of like carrying things for a while when you need to but then also being able to take them off and let them go and go on to something else And sometimes when I make a piece that's very, you know, close to my heart, which are the ones I think are the most powerful, and I'm always trying to get my students to to get to that point, that um, it also helps me kind of resolve some of that. And sometimes I can kind of let things go. So it's a little bit art therapy when you make stuff, too, that's really meaningful. And um, so, yes, I do try to instill that in the students. So there's both this private 
and this public part of making an art. And there's a private part of like what you're doing when you're doing it yourself. And that in and of itself is a very important thing, the act of making and thinking it through a creation. And, you know, I know you go through the same thing when you're making a story and these things start coming out that you, you know, you start digging around and something starts showing up and it's really cool and surprising and fun. And just that bit but with like physical stuff, you know. Even though I work in audio and I work in stories, sometimes telling somebody isn't as meaningful as showing them. So now you've yeah. got this weekend mm-hmm. a fashion a fashion show coming up with your students, and it's a culmination, I think, of their work for the year. Now, how do you how do you translate that message, Carolyn, to people who are who are in the process of 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 picking up their rocks and putting them down? Right. Well, I think one thing, something you just said about how there's the storytelling and then there's the seeing. When the students talk about their work, you can you can see it in their work, what they were dealing with emotionally. You know, it shows up in the work. And then we have that. But then we also have the audio and the, you know, the students talking about it to tie those the two things together. So it's an interesting, it's always an interesting balance because the fashion show, you know, a few years ago, it sort of kind of got to be a, a bigger thing and a more complex thing. And we started getting good following. We get 800 people that show up to the live show between two, you know, we have two shows and about four or 500 people each show. And, and at some point we realized we have like, we have the attention of like 800 people for 45 minutes. And that's huge, right? <laughs> you don't usually get that. And so I was like, so what do we want to talk about? You know, we want them to see the main thing is to appreciate the students' designs. And it's for sure that always is first and foremost. We're going to showcase the work they've done and celebrate their work. That is top priority. But on top of that, then what other stories do we want to talk about? A typical fashion show, they're trying to get you to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's usually the main thing. But we don't. The students aren't particularly wanting to sell their stuff because they worked really hard and they want to hold on to it. Still, and they're <laughs> not in production. We always have some kind of theme that we work out with the students early, like in the fall, and then um, kind of develop that into something that's got some, you know, we want some substance to it, which is why we'll go out and reach out to somebody who deals with whatever that issue is and then try to get some more background in that. So we, it's this balance between we want to have it a strong enough narrative that people who maybe aren't wouldn't normally come to a fashion show might find this an interesting thing to see and they'll come learn more about fashion and our students' designs. And then the people that come in for fashion and student designs might wind up in a conversation that they might not have had had they not come to this. So we're looking for that balance. But again, the student work is always, you know, the big you know, that's the biggest draw, and that's the most important part. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan, Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wikihow produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Sleep. 
And I'm your host, Allison Markoski. Stay up to date with the Wart Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Have a great night.